I'd like to start this evening by reading you an excerpt from a book called The Heart's Code. It's written by a man named Paul Pearsall, who's a psychoneuroimmunologist. And his premise is that the heart has the capacity to know in a way that's as um, powerful as the brains, although quite different. So he gives some really amazing um, examples in this book from his research working with people who have had heart transplants. And some of the recipients of the hearts actually have memories that were from the person whose heart they received, or so it seems. Um, And the example that I'm going to read you is a man named David who died in a car accident, and his wife, Glenda, was with him. It was an accident at night, and he was killed, and his heart was donated, and Glenda is about to meet the recipient of David's heart. And it's the I is Paul Pearsall, the narrator. Three years after the accident, Does this too loud? (laughs) Seems loud to me. No? Okay. (laughs) Three years after the accident, Glenda sat with me in a dimly lit hospital chapel. At her request, I had arranged a meeting between her and the young man whose life had been saved by the gift of her husband's heart. The heart recipient and his mother were almost a half hour late for the meeting, and I was ready to suggest to Glenda that we leave. The issue of recipients meeting donor families is a very sensitive one, and I understood why the man may have changed his mind. As I stood and took Glenda's hand, she said quietly, No, we have to wait. He's here in the hospital. I felt him arrive about 30 minutes ago. I felt my husband's presence. Please wait with me. Glenda is a practicing family physician. She's well-versed in bioscience and, as I do, admires the rigor and healthy skepticism of modern science. Now, however, the power of something that transcends what science calls common sense was tugging at her heart. David's heart is here, she added. I can't believe I'm saying that to you, but I feel it. His recipient is here in this hospital. At that moment, the door opened, and the young man and his mother walked hurriedly down the center aisle of the chapel. Sorry we're late, said the young man, with a heavy Spanish accent. We got here a half hour ago, but we couldn't find the chapel. After introductions and awkward attempts at humor about a heart-to-heart meeting between the young man and her husband's heart, the young wife and her husband's heart, the usually shy Glenda blurted out, This embarrasses me as much as it must embarrass you, but can I put my hand on your chest and feel his, I mean your heart? The young man looked at me and then his mother, put his hand to his chest, and finally nodded his head. As Glenda reached forward, he unbuttoned his shirt, took her hand, and gently placed it against his naked chest. What happens next transcends our current view of the brain, body, heart, and mind. Now, I need to pause (laughs) 
and tell you something that I should have told you at the beginning, which is before the accident in the car, they had an argument, a quarrel. Just some silly thing, but it says that they didn't come to a resolution and they were sitting silently in kind of resentful energy when the accident happened. Glenda's hand began to tremble and tears rolled down her cheek. She closed her eyes and whispered, I love you, David. Everything is copacetic. She removed her hand, hugged the young man to her chest, and all of us wiped tears from our eyes. Glenda and the young man sat down and silhouetted against the stained glass window of the chapel, held hands in silence. Speaking in her heavy Spanish accent, the young man's mother told me, My son uses that word, copacetic, all the time now. He never used it before he got his new heart. But after his surgery, it was the first thing he said to me when he could talk. I didn't know what it means. He said everything was copacetic. It's not a word I know in Spanish. Glenda overheard us. Her eyes widened. She turned toward us and said, that word was our signal that everything is okay. Every time we argued and made up, we would both say that everything is copacetic. So it goes on. There's a bit more where the mother talks about the son uh, as being a former vegetarian and very health conscious and that he now craves meat and fatty foods. (laughs) And he was a former lover of heavy metal music and he now loves 50s rock and roll. (laughs) And he also reported recurrent dreams of bright lights coming right toward him. Glenda responded almost matter-of-factly that her husband loved meat, had played in a Motown rock and roll band while in medical school, and that she too dreams of the lights of that fateful night. So... (laughs) What does this all have to do with our practice? This doctor, Paul Pearsall, says that the way to access, the way that the heart, to access heart information is much more receptive than that of the brain. That the energy of the brain is inclined to do and the energy of the heart is inclined to be. And certainly we know We know some of this in our own experience already, of course. And it's always kind of interesting when modern science starts to catch up (laughs) and quantify and measure this kind of intuitive knowing that that we have as human beings. So I think often in our practice we start to see the difference between the brain's way of knowing and the heart's way of knowing. We start to see that the brain, while it's a very sophisticated mechanism of interpreting and understanding and functioning in this world, has its limitations. And it really needs to be joined with the heart. And I think in a very big way, that's what our practice is doing, that kind of integration. 
The practice of mindfulness does that kind, initiates or fosters, nourishes that kind of integration, and also the practice of metta that we've been practicing in the past days together. So tonight I'd like to speak some more about the four Brahmaviharas. Metta is one of the four. And I'd also like to touch on how I see that the actual purity of the experience of each of the Brahmaviharas is not really essentially very different from a moment of mindfulness, a pure moment of mindfulness. The techniques are quite different in the practices, but the actual experience, the direct moment, I don't think is so very different. When I was reading this book a while back, I never did read the whole thing, but I was really focused on the heart. And when I was thinking about the Brahma-viharas, I, I kind of made this an metaphor in my mind about the four Brahma-viharas and the four chambers of the human heart. So I'm going to be speaking about these four chambers. This is what uh, Nyanapanaka Tara says about the four Brahma-viharas, which are loving-kindness, compassion, appreciation of joy, and equanimity. He says that these four attitudes are excellent or sublime because they're the right or the ideal way of conduct toward living beings. And I'd like to just remind us that that includes ourselves as well as others. And that they provide, in fact, all the answers that we need to situations arising from social contact. They're the great removers of tension, the great peacemakers in social conflict, the great healers of wounds struggle, uh, suffered in the struggle of existence. They level social barriers, build harmonious communities, awaken slumbering magnanimity long forgotten, revive joy and hope, long abandoned, and promote human brotherhood and sisterhood against the forces of egotism. So, Lord knows, the world needs some of this. And this is the language of the heart, that place of natural connection. It's not something we really need to fabricate or create. It is the heart's way of knowing. The very first time for myself that I understood what it meant to be in love is a story that I'm going to tell you right now. (laughs) I was totally alone. And I was living at the time in um, California, in the Sierra Mountains, in near Lake Tahoe. And I was on my way back to Lake Tahoe at dawn uh, from a nearby town called Truckee, if you know the area. It's a really beautiful area. Sierra Nevada's in the distance. It was sunrise, so they were lit up kind of pink. They're almost always snow-covered. Just really beautiful. And I was hitchhiking 
back home, which is something that I did back in those years. And my mind was very quiet. And I was standing at the side of the road. It was probably quiet because I'd been up all night and I was tired. But my mind was quiet. And I was just standing at the side of the road hitchhiking. And so there were these beautiful mountains colored by the sunrise. And there was also a billboard across the street. And at some moment, just no cars, not a car in sight. (laughs) It was too early. But it didn't matter. There was some, just that perfection in the moment. You know how we can have those moments where we're just fully present. Often they happen for me in nature. And we're open and receptive and just taking it in. And there's just that kind of fullness. And the thought that came to my mind was, I'm in love. I mean, I really got it in a way that I I was in a state of love. And in a way, it was the billboard that tipped me off. (laughs) Because I really don't like billboards. And back then... I really didn't like them even more than I do now. You know, I was really adamant about burn the billboards, get rid of the billboards. And, but the billboard was just there. It was just me and the sunrise and the mountains and the billboard, and there was no reactivity, just a state of openness. It was all perfect in that moment, which isn't to say that I still wouldn't vote to do away with the billboards, but I wasn't in a state of resistance. And it felt like a true, the very first true experience of being in love. And sometimes we have the good fortune or grace to share that state with another human being, you know, or many other human beings. But it it isn't required. We can access that. There have been a few other times uh, in daily life, and I'm sure you could all name some yourselves, when you've felt that kind of unconditional loving presence, connected presence. Quite often for me, it's in the way that we listen to each other, when we're really doing good listening. You know, the way that a friend shows up for me and is there when I need to share something. And just in a wholehearted way, I feel so loved by that. And really what they're doing is being present, being um, just there, quite simply. I remember this one retreat I was on with a Tibetan teacher who was a a very, very wonderful teacher. And um, the person who was doing the interpreting at that time, was also a devoted student of this teacher. So already there was a quality of of love in this person for the teachings and probably also for the teacher. But what I really liked watching was the way that that interpreter showed up for the teacher and paid attention to his words so that he could then do a good job of interpreting them. And it just was so exquisite to watch. And similarly, I've seen something like this at the end of retreats when we have a little, sometimes we have a little breaking silence exercise where people pair up and you practice speaking and listening. And when I'm in this seat up here guiding one of those, I love to watch. And I love especially to watch the people listening. It's so beautiful, just that showing up for somebody, being present. 
So that's an example of how I see a wholehearted presence, which is really what we're cultivating in the mindfulness practice, as synonymous with love or metta. The next two Brahma-viharas, compassion and this appreciation of joy, others' joy and our own, is that same open, connected, present, very present heart turned toward either the suffering in the world or the joy. It's that simple. And it's interesting to notice as we um, do these practices or just pay attention to these qualities in our lives that for some of us, we have a more natural connection with compassion. For some, a more natural connection with metta. Or perhaps for some, a more natural connection with mudita, which is turn toward joy. So just to see as you listen tonight or as you do these practices, as you do metta and as you confront some of these experiences, you know, in your own experience here, you know, whether it's something painful or whether it's joy, to start to notice how we respond. Can we stay present and open and connected with it when it's arising in ourselves or in another? So in just the same way that we show up for someone in that loving state of metta, karuna or compassion is showing up for the suffering, aligning or turning that heart of metta toward the suffering in the world, toward the pain. And it's a practice. You know, and in the same way that um, Heather was talking about our mindfulness practice being a process of purification, certainly the Brahma-viharas in cultivating these qualities of the heart is very much a purification process as well. So we have to be patient and forgiving and remember that it's a practice and that we're doing our best. You know, it doesn't come easily necessarily. With painful situations... For some of us, or at some times in our lives, you know, the natural tendency is to shut down or pull away, you know, to close off. Sometimes we feel like, I couldn't possibly be open to the pain in this world. I would be overwhelmed. There's way too much. So just to notice those movements in the heart and trust it, it's okay. It's like a flower that learns to open, you know, when the conditions are right. But this aspect of karuna or compassion is such an important piece of our practice. It's really the the other side, you know, there's the wisdom aspect of our practice and it needs the compassion aspect to balance it, to soften it, to bring in some moisture. There have been times I've seen a kind of distortion of wisdom in practitioners. I have a dear friend who, for whom I would say this is true, where I feel like he really sees things clearly 
and very deeply and sees really the emptiness of all phenomenon. And he can tend to kind of slip into a kind of depression. And what I can sometimes see is it feels like there's too much wisdom and not enough compassion, where he doesn't have that connecting energy very developed. The classical definition of compassion is the quivering of the heart in response to pain, our own pain or the pain of another. So as we face this first noble truth that there is suffering in the world, we see it in so many different ways, on so many different levels. Can we open to open it, open to it? Can we let it touch our hearts? Someone a couple retreats ago that I was talking to in an interview shared a story with me that I thought was a really nice um, example of a transition that can happen in practice. It's really basic and simple. He was describing um, a struggle that he'd gotten into that day on the retreat and this hitting this place of really strong frustration with a particular scenario and the story that came with it and really suffering in it. And at some point, as he was observing that this was what was happening in his experience, he noticed or he, he saw that it was a very young part of himself that was reacting to what had happened. And what he noticed next was that the tone of the mental note that he was using for this shifted from this kind of dismissive, it's just a thought. You know that one? (laughs) It's like we're trying to note that we're thinking and we're caught up in something, but we're actually just trying to get rid of it. You know, it's just a thought. Let me move on. He noticed it shifted from that to this really compassionate and connected, oh, it's just a thought. And it was this energetic shift that he was very aware of as it happened. And he offered that it's just a thought more as a comfort to that sort of old, wounded child part of himself that was having this reaction. And he didn't impose this. He didn't think, I should do this and then do it. It just happened really naturally for him. And I just thought it was a beautiful example of a kind of deepening in his practice. You know, where he, a kind of deepening of compassion, really, for that part of himself that was caught up in the struggle. And it's different. It's different than if he was to feel sorry for that young part of himself or pity for it. Pity is not compassion. It's close to it in a certain way, but it's off the mark. And we know when, you know, the difference when we experience it. A pure compassion means being present for the suffering without denial, without defensiveness, without judgment. There's no one better than. It's just a meeting of the pain. It's said in the text that compassion arises out of seeing the helplessness of those who are suffering. 
And I think this is why for many of us, we can start to have those first openings of compassion when we see or when we realize that it actually is some old, young part of ourselves. Because we were helpless at that time when that pattern got locked into place. I know for myself, my very first opening of compassion was very much like this. I can remember, I think I'll remember it until the day I die. It was such a powerful moment, you know, really clear, a shift in my heart. I was on, um, it was actually my first 10-day retreat. Jack was teaching, (laughs) among others, at Yucca Valley in the mid-80s which is in the desert, a really beautiful spot in the desert. And I'd been having a really hard retreat. I'm not even sure, maybe I knew then, maybe I didn't even know then, what was so hard. But there was a lot of emotional upheaval and tears and just a lot of suffering. A lot of what felt in a way like dying, actually. It was very intense. And I felt a bit at sea. Like I didn't really know that this was where I should be. (laughs) I was starting to have doubts. And at a certain point, I just felt so worn out. I felt like I can't go on. And it was well into the retreat. It was a 10-day retreat. I think it was like around day seven or something, six or seven. And I remember that I just, for me, this was a really big decision, but I decided I'm done. I have to leave. And I went and even talked to the manager, and I said, I'm out of here. <laughs> I'm going tomorrow morning. It's been enough. <laughs> you know. And that night, for the first time, I skipped the late sitting at night, which I had been going to all the sittings and being a very diligent, if somewhat obsessive, yogi. Um, and that night, I just gave my since I was leaving anyway the next day, I said, I don't have to go to the last sit. I'm just going to go to bed. I'm so exhausted. So I went walking from where the meditation hall is back to my dormitory, which is this lovely walk through the desert. And um, it's high desert, and there's just an awesome starry sky there, really beautiful. And so I was walking back in the dark under these amazing stars and not really thinking. You know, I really had surrendered and thought I was leaving in the morning. And at some point on that walk back to my room, And I'm not a visual type. This was unusual for me. But I suddenly had the image that I was carrying myself back to my room, like a small self in my arms, back to bed, to put to bed. And it was so real. It was so, it was just this moment of caring for myself with no judgment and feeling the suffering and just taking care of myself. And it was so powerful. It was really amazing. I still thought I was leaving in the morning. <laughs> and I'll abbreviate the rest of the story, which uh, goes on for a while. But the short version is that I, I went to bed and I thought, you know, I'm leaving. But, you know, I'll listen to my dreams. And I had this incredible dream in which Davas came and I was out of gas and they gave me gas and... And then I didn't really care about leaving and going to the airport. I just wanted to go with them. And they were these amazing, beautiful, old, ancient women. And I mean, it was an amazing dream. And I woke up. And in, when I woke up, I was noting my breath. 
what and I like rarely have I done that. <laughs> that was the first time. <laughs> um, and I was so completely there, you know, I knew I couldn't leave. And in fact, one of the other teachers, James Berez, came up to me later that morning and said, shall we talk? I, I hear you leaving. And I just looked at him and went, <laughs> and he said, are you okay? And I just went. <laughs> he told me later he'd never seen such a strong shift. <laughs> and that day I realized I had to come sit here for three months. And I did that same year. And basically I've been here ever since. <laughs> so it was really an important moment, that opening of compassion for myself. So a really simple, basic way to start to develop this quality in our own experience, and particularly for ourselves, which for some of us it can be the hardest one to really connect with around the the pain, is to just start to really notice those times when we're suffering in our practice. You know, in a way, they're this amazing opportunity. You know, we often think, uh-oh, what have I done wrong? What do I need to do now to get out of this? But actually, it's this amazing opportunity to start to cultivate something like acceptance, compassion, kindness, patience. So you can almost look forward to the next time that you're caught up in some suffering. And in our mindfulness practice, you know, as we're doing Vipassana, you know, during the day, just when we get really caught up and really lost in some struggle or we're really being hard on ourselves, in those moments to just remember, oh, we have the skillful means, let's bring in some metta, if that feels helpful. It can really be useful in that way, as a skillful means. A few years ago, I was doing a self-retreat, and I was actually doing it next door. Um, I was house-sitting for Joseph, who lives next door, so I was over in his house and a couple of weeks of self-retreat, and it was during the winter, and I remember being inside and a lot of snow outside and cold, and and I was, again, I think I suffer a lot in my practice, actually. Um, So anyway, it was another time of, like, emotional dukkha happening. No particular storyline, just, you know lots of emotional dukkha. And I had already been teaching when I was on this retreat, and I was thinking, God, how could I be a teacher? I'm a mess. You know, I'm, I'm here I am doing this retreat, I'm suffering, and, you know, something's wrong. And then it was like, hello, <laughs> what am I forgetting here? Oh, you know, I can pay attention to this. You know, this is the truth. This is taking refuge in the truth right now. It's just suffering. And I came up with a new mental note, which can be effective at times like that. So it's, ow. (laughs) Ow, ow, ow. (laughs) But it worked for me. It really worked. And when I say it worked, I mean it helped me to actually pay attention and stop trying to avoid what was happening. It was awful (laughs) what was happening. 
and it shifted, you know, not didn't take too long noting out <laughs> for things to kind of loosen up. I think it was locked in before by my resistance and my avoidance, you know, maybe my fear of it. I want to read you this short passage um, about how a wisteria seed germinates. It's written by um, Barbara Gates, who writes really lovely articles for a magazine called The Inquiring Mind. Perhaps you know some of her work. And in case you don't know wisteria, it's a vine, a flowering vine, that has these incredibly beautiful, fragrant purple flowers that hang in clusters, kind of like grapes. Before you plant the wisteria seed, you need to scarify it, shake it up in a jar lined with sandpaper, or notch it with a knife. When moisture seeps through a seed coat, it provides oxygen and creates pressure in the interior of the seed. The cells of the embryo begin to divide. The embryo swells until it ruptures the softened coat and a root erupts. But a seed such as the wisteria has armor so sturdy it doesn't allow moisture to penetrate, thus resisting germination. Because the seed's journey is often rough, spanning distant terrains with drastic changes in heat and cold, wet and dry, a coat may possess great resistance to environmental extremes. To germinate, some seeds simply require water, but some require violence, to be shattered by force. I'm told by a botanist friend that some seeds only crack open when trampled by elephants. Others need intense cold, still others fire. Seeds with their wide range of protective coats co-evolve with their particular habitats. The seeds and their habitats inter-are. I like that in terms of a practice story. You know, some of us need a little trampling. And not by external forces. It goes on inside. For me, it just kind of validates that my struggles and the, you know, the emotional dukkha that arises sometimes on retreat is part of that seed cracking open so that the water can come in, so that it can soften and germinate. So even our very small openings of compassion are tremendously powerful. We can really learn this place of connection of the heart in very small, very subtle, very gentle ways, and sometimes in much bigger, stronger ways. But it's a very healing and important thing to learn, thing to recognize in ourselves, that movement of the heart, that place where the heart can truly connect, even where it's painful, really painful. The next of the Brahma Viharas is mudita. 
It's sometimes referred to as sympathetic or empathetic joy, and I like to think of it as appreciative joy, that we can appreciate the joy in the world. And I love that this morning some of the questions came around to the place of joy in our practice, you know, on this path. There is a pretty strong emphasis on the suffering, and maybe a little bit we go a little light on the joy. So this can be a really useful reminder that this appreciative joy is one of these four Brahmaviharas or divine abodes, sublime abidings. It's said in the text, and I think it may be true based on people that I've spoken with, that this is the harder place for many of us especially around rejoicing in the joy of others. That we tend often to have a hard time with this. So if that's true for you, I just want to say in advance, please don't judge yourself about it. It is challenging. You know, it's not something that we're really trained in, in this culture. It's pretty much a me, me, me kind of world, or at least here in our world. I remember the very first time I felt like I gained a little bit of understanding in terms of how to do this practice, that the practice of rejoicing in others' joy. And it's a really basic thing, totally simple. But it really had a profound effect for me. It, I mean, you're going to laugh, it's so basic. But really, for me, it was realizing that in order to start to have that capacity to appreciate the joy in others, I needed to shift the focus from myself to them. When you think about it, it's in a way that simple. It's just that we're so deeply habituated to keep the focus here or to continually bring it back. We might for a moment go, oh, yeah, you're doing good, but what about me? You know, it's, it's a very old, strong habit. But if one can truly shift the attention, just that wholehearted attention to another, and they're experiencing joy, that joy is ours to share. Because really, we're not separate. And this isn't something we can come to intellectually. It's much more of an experiential thing. But I invite you to experiment with that very simple guideline in life and see, see what happens. This again is from Jnanapanaka Tara about mudita. Your life will gain in joy by sharing the happiness of others as if it was yours. Did you never observe how in moments of happiness our features change and become bright with joy? Did you never notice how joy rouses people to noble aspirations and deeds, exceeding their normal capacity. Did not such experience fill your own heart with joyful bliss? Noble and sublime joy is a helper on the path to the extinction of suffering. Not one who is depressed by grief, but one possessed of joy finds that serene calmness 
leading to a contemplative state of mind. I'm just going to repeat that line. Not one who is depressed by grief, but one possessed of joy finds that serene calmness that leads to a contemplative state of mind. And only a mind serene and collected is able to gain the liberating wisdom. So it would seem that joy is a really important part of our path. It's joy or happiness that leads to calm. And out of that calm comes that ability to see things clearly, for wisdom to develop, insight. Not to mention that it makes so much sense to try to foster and cultivate this quality of mudita in the world. Our chances for happiness are that much greater if we're not only looking to our own experience. I mean, it's multiplied, you know, so widely if we can share in the joy of others. So why is it so hard? I think mostly, again, my simple theory of, you know, that we're very oriented toward paying attention to ourselves and then comparing Comparing mind, at least in my experience, is a big one. I can remember on my first three-month retreat here, noting comparing mind thousands of times. Comparing, 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 comparing. I mean, it got to be funny after a while, which helped. Because it's a painful state. So we compare ourselves and we think that somehow the joy, the happiness in the world is a limited commodity. And if somebody else has a good share of it, then we probably don't. You know, they might have some of ours. (laughs) But actually, when we can open to that place where the heart knows that we're not separate, there's that sense of it being shared. I saw a really beautiful example of this once when I was on retreat here. It was in um, 1996 on the three-month retreat, and on that retreat I turned 40. And I had been around here for already a number of years, so I knew a lot of people. You know, I'd been on staff years ago and, and, you know, just been in the neighborhood and involved with the center for a long time. So there were a lot of people that knew it was my 40th birthday. So I was staying in the annex. Um, and in the annex, if you're not there now, there's, there's like two doors that are near one another, set in a little bit from the hallway, two doors, two rooms, and then more hallway and two doors, two rooms. So there was a woman in the next room, the the next door to me, who was an LTY, long-term yogi. She'd been sitting for a number of months already and then sat through that three-month retreat. And on my birthday, it was actually like a little overwhelming, (laughs) the, the response that my friends who were not on retreat got into in terms of helping me celebrate. So every time I came back to my room, there'd be some little gift or package or a card or 
something on the door or near the door. And I mean, it was just every time I came back to my room, it was really quite an outpouring of love and, and fun. But I also felt a little worried, like, oh, how is this, you know, for everyone? And anyway, at the end of the retreat, this lovely yogi who was my neighbor next door said to me, you know, we were checking in about the retreat and how are you and how, you know, how have you been? And, and she was saying, talking to me about her retreat. And then she remembered my birthday, which is in the beginning of November, about halfway through the retreat. And she said, your birthday. She said, oh, it was amazing. She said, I'd go away. She said, and every time I'd come back, I'd think, we got more. It was so sweet, and it was so sincere. It wasn't contrived, you know. She, she just was enjoying the packages, you know, <laughs> which in some cases was actually more fun than what was inside. It was really quite a beautiful example. So again, I just want to remind you that as you explore this particular Brahma-vihara in your life or in your practice, uh, even this week, just remember that it's hard and it's a process of purification and that we're not going to have that pure experience like that woman did in that moment all the time. Probably even she doesn't have it all the time, although maybe she does. So please be kind and compassionate with yourself if the opposite arises, envy or jealousy. In my experience, the state of jealousy is one of the most excruciating emotions to feel. It's so painful. And it's just that much harder if we then beat ourselves up for feeling it. Can we meet that state with mindfulness, with compassion? Because it's a state of suffering. It's painful. I think another, in another way, the reason that mudita, this quality of appreciating joy, is hard for us is that somehow... We have this notion, I don't know if it's just spiritual practitioners or if it's true in the world at large, but I I think often we have this idea that somehow it's more noble to suffer than to be happy. You know, and I sometimes notice that among my friends or like we readily share about our trials and what we're struggling with and, you know, it's almost the kind of identification or there is identification with it. And we, you know, might not so readily share, you know, the joyful times, the real deep happiness. Why is that? You know, maybe it's because we're afraid that the other person might feel jealous. But it's interesting to notice how we can overlook happiness in that way. So I want to read you part of this poem. It's called Ode to My Joy. It's by Pablo Neruda, and I'm editing it some because it's long, but it's worth reading in its entirety someday if you have a chance. Joy, green leaf resting on the windowsill, tiny brightness newly born, 
occasional fragile gust of wind, but more often hope realized and duty properly done. I scorned you, Joy. I was given bad advice. The moon lured me along its paths. Ancient poets lent me their glasses, and I drew a dark halo around everything I saw, a black crown on every flower, a melancholy kiss on each pair of beloved lips. But there's still time. Let me make it up to you. I thought that if I closed my eyes to the rose and caressed the open wound, suffering my share of everyone's pain, that only then was I aiding my fellow man. In this I erred. I had lost my way. So today I call on you, Joy. You are as necessary as earth. You warm our hearths like fire. You are perfect like bread. You are musical like the water of a river. You make gifts of honey circulating like a bee. Joy, I was a moody youth. I found your mop of hair shocking. But when its abundance showered down on my chest, I discovered it wasn't true. Today, Joy, I ran into you on the street, far from any book. Come with me. I want to go with you house to house. I want to go from town to town, flag to flag. You aren't just for me. Around the world with you and with my song with the stars' winking flight and the sea spray's delight. I will deliver them all, because to all I owe my joy. Let no one question why I should want to give the world's wonders to all mankind. I learned the hard way. It's my earthly duty to spread joy, and I do this through my song. So you might have to wait till the end of the retreat to do it with your song, but you can do it with your song in your heart, in silence. The caution that's offered in the teachings around this quality of appreciative joy, mudita, is about slipping into over-exuberance. And it's interesting to look at that. What does that mean? There's some truth to it. And I, I know from my own experience, there were times when there was a lot of joy arising, and what I would do would be kind of dive into it. And diving into it is fine, as long as we remember to use the juice of it, use the energy of it, and keep being mindful, keep paying attention. It's actually an amazing nectar and nourishment for our practice. And it fosters that state of calm that I read about earlier. 
but I would dive in in a way just to totally enjoy, and I'd forget about practice. Like, who needs it? I'm happy. And then, of course, it would run out. It would change, you know, because all things change. And then I would kind of have to I think, oh, what did I do wrong? I've lost it. Now I need to get it back. So that's the caution. You know, that's the relationship we don't want to develop. But there was also a point when I became so skilled at not slipping into over-exuberance that I felt like I lost my joy. It was as though I lost my ability to access that in practice. I was so ready to not get attached to it that it was like, oh, joy, okay, you know. And now I'm advising a middle path (laughs) to myself. Not over-exuberance, nor rejection, but to actually experience it and use it. Let it support us. The last of the Brahma-viharas is upeka, or equanimity. And this quality of equanimity really runs through the other three Brahma-viharas. And in a way, is that aspect of wisdom. So it's love with wisdom, you know, rather than love with desire. And it's the wisdom of connection with suffering, the wisdom, the knowing that we can connect without being overwhelmed, without shutting down. And that wisdom that I was just describing in the joy, where we don't necessarily get lost in it, nor do we reject it. Equanimity is so much about this place of balance in our practice. Sometimes I think that, like everything in this practice and probably in life, it's easy to misunderstand this quality of equanimity. And in fact, in each of these Brahma-viharas, there's like what are called near enemies and far enemies. And the near enemies are the qualities that look like them, but aren't them. They're close to them. And the far enemies are the opposites of them. And equanimity, in a way, I think there's a kind of I've seen in practice sometimes a kind of false equanimity, which is actually denial. You know, we think it's the balance of non-reactivity, but actually we're shut off, we're cut off. And it can get subtle. It's interesting to see. It's, you know, when if we think we have to kind of paint a, beatific smile on our faces and sit like a Buddha even when we're, you know, in the middle of suffering. You know, that's not really equanimity. That's denial. We're not, you know, being honest about what's happening. And yet we can be suffering and also have a balanced presence with it. And that's the quality of equanimity there. Equanimity doesn't mean that we have to like our experience necessarily. I remember some couple of years ago I was corresponding with a prisoner about his meditation about meditation practice and 
At a certain point, he wrote me a letter describing the conditions where he was practicing in the prison. And they were really bad, you know, really a lot of suffering. And also this incredibly noisy, kind of jarring to the senses environment. And he wrote in his letter that um, he'd, been me- he'd been meditating for a few years and he was finding it really challenging to enjoy those jarring sounds during his practice. And I wrote him back suggesting that he didn't necessarily have to enjoy them, but rather to accept that that was the truth of his experience and begin to open to them and explore them so to help ease any reactivity around them. But it doesn't mean that we have to like it. You know, it's unpleasant. So actually paying attention to those qualities of um, pleasantness, unpleasantness, and neutrality in our experience on retreat and in life is a great way to start to cultivate or recognize this quality of equanimity. Simply noticing, you know, when something is unpleasant. When we have enough mindfulness, enough presence of mind to notice that it's unpleasant, there's some space there where we don't necessarily the next step doesn't necessarily have to follow of reactivity. Normally, you know, the chain is unpleasantness, hating it. You know, and if we put some mindfulness in there, it gives us some space where we can just keep being with, oh, it's unpleasant, unpleasant. And we don't have to necessarily get pulled into the aversion, the hating which, of course, is just adding suffering to suffering. Or adding suffering to unpleasantness. So freedom comes for us in our own experience of seeing these moments of resistance or clinging, those times when that language of the heart is not accessible to us, that place of connection, and letting go. Sometimes it can be that simple, where we just start to see those places where we get caught in some kind of reaction or shutting off. We start to recognize that. I mean, in that way, suffering is such a great teacher. It's, you know, we notice, oh, hello, I'm suffering. What's happening? And we can see, oh, I'm resisting what's, ha- what's happening here. Or I'm wanting something that's not happening. And if we can e- relax that, let it go, there's peace. There's stillness, equanimity. One of the common misunderstandings about equanimity is that it means that we're passive. You know, that if we, if there's this deep acceptance, which is at the heart of equanimity, is this 
acceptance of things being the way that they are. In fact, when I do Brahma Vihara practice, the phrase that I use for the equanimity is, things are as they are. Things are as they are. And for me, this has been a really, really useful practice to apply in some of my relationships with my family. With family members who are suffering quite a bit and who I can't really help, although I would really love to, I have to come to that place of this is the way it is which doesn't mean that I don't still show up, make myself available, offer my help. But mostly when things are so hard like that, we just want to shut off, close down, look away. And this phrase of thing, this is the way it is. Again, it's that refuge of the truth. This is the truth of this situation. Can I face it? Can I be with it? It's through that place of connection with it that we can then potentially see where we might actually be able to help, where we might be able to offer something. And I think that in our mindfulness practice, a moment of pure mindfulness, when we're simply present, is a moment of equanimity when there's not that reactivity of clinging or resisting, when we sit with what's difficult, or when we experience the joys in practice. And there's still a kind of stillness, kind of stillness in the heart where it's just steady with what is. That's equanimity. So these four Brahma-viharas, loving-kindness, compassion, appreciating joy, and equanimity. They speak the language of presence and connection that transcends the brain's language of ideas and concepts, time and space. And they bring us into a fullness of life that excludes nothing, no part of our experience, no part of the world, and the experience of others. I'd like to close with this quotation. It's from a Christian mystic whose name I'm not certain of the pronunciation of. I think it's St. Hashikios, the priest. He said, Just as someone who looks at the sun cannot avoid filling the eyes with light, so someone who always intently contemplates their own heart cannot fail to be illuminated. Let's sit quietly for just a few moments.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.